Sweet. Honor is a powerful thing. Honor gives you access. Say that with me. Honor gives you access. Honor is a very powerful, powerful key to success in life. God says in the book of Malachi, if I am your father, then where is my honor? Honor does such things as bring a man back to his prophetic identity. When Joseph showed up with wagons to honor Jacob, the Bible says Jacob saw the wagons, but Israel spoke. It's amazing what honor can do to a man. When you honor a man, he'll start speaking to you from his prophetic position. And so honor is big today. And we want to take a moment. If you are a dad, would you please stand right now? If you're a dad and you're in the church, would you please stand right now? Awesome. All right. I really want you to clap your hands real good and let these guys know how much you love them and appreciate them. You know, it, 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 seems like, it seems like you guys may be seated. It seems like on Mother's Day, we give out flowers and ladies are wearing their hats and we got gifts and all kinds of stuff. And then Father's Day shows up. And we're like, thanks, guys. But we want you to know how much you are appreciated. And speaking of honor, you know, there is, um, when you pastor, pastors pastor under different anointings. And the role of a pastor is not just to nurture, but to nourish. And a lot of times, the people of God get that mixed up, the difference in nourishing and nurturing. And I found that most Christians cling to nurturing more than they do nourishing. And really, in the Greek, the verb for pastor is to feed. One of the greatest pastors I've ever met in my life is the man that founded this property. And when I say founded, he literally found this property. He put his feet on it and he claimed it for the kingdom of God. And I wanted to take a moment today to honor Pastor Ronnie Harrison. He was one of the best pastors that I've ever known. Come on, show him some love today. That he, is, he was a pastor's pastor. He's the epitome of a pastor. So we, we wanted to do that. And then, you know, today uh, I, wore, I wore my cowboy boots Pat asked me why I wore jeans today. This is for my dad. My dad, I saw my dad in dress shoes one time, and it was at my brother's wedding. And I eased up to him. I said, Dad, how you liking them dress shoes? And he looked down at me, and he said, I'll never wear them again. And uh, he always had cowboy boots on all, just every day. That's what he wore. And uh, I remember when I went into ministry, I went to visit my dad one time. I had been in ministry for about a year, and I stepped up on his porch, and he went to shake my hand and give me a hug. We, you know, he, he always kissed all of us on the cheek, his sons and daughters. He'd kiss us on the cheek. And he gave me that kiss and shook my hand. And he pulled his hand back and he said, son, you got hands like a woman. I said, what, what do you mean, dad? He said, you don't have any calluses on your hand. I said, well, dad, I've been preaching. I haven't been doing physical labor. And he said, well, you need to get out there and build a fence or work on a car or something. But get you some calluses on your hand. My dad was that kind of guy. He raised us working pipelines, you know, six, six days a week, 10 hours a day. And uh, he was a man's man. So today I wore my cowboy boots just to celebrate my dad and let him know, you know, I know he's looking down from heaven. He was, he was quite the guy. He kept us in the woods all the time, teaching us how to hunt. And he just was a real country boy. And uh, third grade education, he picked cotton in the Delta of Mississippi when he was 10 years old to, because his mom died when he was 10. His dad was struck by lightning. And so he and his brother started picking cotton in the cotton fields of Mississippi in the 30s. Can you believe that? During the Depression, in order to make money for their family to eat. And uh, he never went back to school. But yet, he learned to weld. And as far as I knew, we was rich my whole life. I thought, I thought we were the richest people in the world. I didn't know we didn't have very much. And uh, he just, he knew how to provide for his family. Seven children. So I just wanted to pause for a moment to give honor to my dad. He's a, he's a great, great man. And yeah, amen. Let me, let me just say this to all of you who are watching. And those of you who are in here, there's a lot of people that are watching us online still because they're not comfortable to come back into crowds yet. And we want you to know we're good with that. We're all good. 
And we've got tons of people that stay home every week and watch online until they're comfortable to come back. That's, that's all up to you. But I do want to say to you that are in here, thank you for making sacrifice to come to the building today. And I know the Lord is going to bless you real good. But what I want you to do is take out your smart device, if you don't mind, and share this service on your Facebook page. And that will help us to get this message out further than it would if you did not do that. And for all of you that are watching on, online, we thank you again for being part of the Quest family. And we speak the blessing of God over you. Would you mind standing for the reading of God's word? I'm not going to preach long today. Three hours and five minutes is all I have on my schedule, and then, then we'll be out. Now, I'm, I'm going to try to get you out as quick as possible because I know it's Father's Day, and I want to respect that. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 17. I'll be reading this particular passage from the New International Version, but it says this, For if by the trespass of the one man, can you say one man? death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? I'm going to preach a message today that is entitled, Because of One Man. Can you say that with me? Because of One Man. Father, thank you for the reading of your word, and we ask you that for the next few moments of time that there would be a prophetic unction in the atmosphere of this building that people would lean forward in their faith to receive something from you. And I thank you, God, that by the end of this service, people will not just be challenged and charged, but they'll literally be changed by the preached word of God. Help me to preach things that I didn't study to say and help the people to hear things that I do not say from your spirit. Father, we break all generational curses, and we thank you that there is the spirit of liberty in this building today. Where there is liberty, there is absolute joy. And we thank you for that there is joy and abundance in this house. Have your way in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Would you clap your hands and just give a shout to the Lord today? Amen. Come on, lift those voices. Praise your name, Jesus. Amen. Now look at someone before you sit down and tell them it's on right now. It's on right now. Amen. All right, let's, let's get in this word. So... All of scripture is a story about a father and his family. I'll say it another way. The narrative of the Bible consists of one story, a father and his family. The predominant characteristic of God throughout all scripture is that of a father. To the point that Isaiah chapter 9 refers to him as the everlasting father. So, God has connected himself to that role in relation to people from Genesis to Revelation. The narrative is the father and his family. Edwin Lewis Cole, in the book Maximize Manhood, made this statement, that the curse of our generation is the absentee father. The curse of our generation is the absentee father. I found that to be true. I found that where the father is not just a father, but he is a present father, a father who is there, that children tend to be more pliable, teachable, and more adaptable through struggles in life. So when you look at God as a father and refer back to Scripture, there are several things that we want to point out. In our text, the Bible says... Sin came through one man, but life came through one man, Jesus Christ. Everyone say one man. When you look at Genesis chapter 18, God is looking, looking at a region referred to as Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't think we need to elaborate on that region. I think we pretty much all know what Sodom and Gomorrah represented. It was a region steeped in sin, right? Don't be afraid to say that word. It was a region steeped in sin. God is about to bring judgment or wrath or destruction to this city because of their sin. But one man steps up to intercede and intercept for the sake of the people. We find this story in Genesis chapter 18, and I'm going to read quite a few verses here, but I pray you will stay with me and give it your wholehearted attention. Genesis chapter 18, verse 16, 
The Bible says, and the men rose up from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, listen carefully to this now, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be what? Blessed in him. Now watch what God says in verse 19. This is powerful. God says, for I know him. God says, I know Abraham. And I know that Abraham will command his children and he will command his household after him. And I know that they will keep the way of the Lord. Listen to it now. To do justice and to do judgment. Mm. That the Lord may bring upon one man, Abraham, that which he hath spoken of him. And the Lord said, because of the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah, that it's great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now, this is God, and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me, and if not, God says, I'll know. Verse 22, and the men turned their faces from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood. But Abraham stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near to the Lord. And said, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure, there's 50 righteous in the city. Will you destroy it and not spare the place for 50 righteous people? Whew. And he said, let that be far from you, that you would do this after that manner, to slay the righteous and the wicked. In other words, he's saying, God, don't change the pattern of who you are. And that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? This man's got some boldness talking to God like that. And the Lord said, if I find 50 in the city, I'll spare it hmm, for the 50's sake. And Abram said, behold now, I've taken upon me to speak to the Lord, and I'm nothing but dust and ashes. But peradventure there lack five of the 50. Will you destroy the city for a lack of five? And he said, if I find 45, listen to God, if I find 45 righteous, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again, and he said, peradventure, if you find 40, and he said, I will not destroy it for 40's sake. Hmm. And he said unto him, oh, Lord, now don't get mad at me. I'm going to keep talking. Peradventure, if there's 30 there, and he said, if I find 30 there, I will not destroy it. And he said, Behold, now I've taken upon me to speak to you. Peradventure, there be 20 there. And he said, I won't destroy it for 20's sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord now be angry with me. I'm going to ask you one more. He said, If there's 10 found, will you destroy it? And he said, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. Listen to verse 33. And the Lord went his way. As soon as he left communing, communing with Abraham. And you want to underline this, and Abraham returned to his place. I want you to say these words with me. Daddy, return to your place. Say it again. Dad, return to your place. So in prayer this morning, I'm praying about the condition of our country, and I don't know how you're carrying that. I don't even know if you're paying attention. But I know it has me consumed that the condition of our country is what it is. And I believe it has consumed me because of the anointing on my life. I believe I was born to care. I believe I was appointed to carry. So I cannot let the events that are happening in this nation go unnoticed by myself, I have to pay attention. And I'm bothered, I'm troubled, I'm burdened, and I'm praying. <laughs> and I wrote this question down on a piece of paper. Is, uh, is America a Christian nation? Or is America a country that has some Christians in it? 
I want to make something clear at the preface of this service. I love my country. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. I love my country. I love the United States of America. I love it. I love this nation. I love it so much that I have some favorite colors. My favorite colors in no particular order are black, white, red, yellow, and blue. I think I'll rehearse those for you one more time. You look totally interested in that. My favorite colors are black, white, red, yellow, brown. A little caramel cast to it. Yellow and blue. Now, in verse 21, God tells Abraham, I'm going to go down and I'm going to check on this crop. Now, whether you want to recognize it or not, there's a cry going out of this country. There's noise in the streets. There's a cry from the heart of this nation. Whether you want to ignore it or not, this nation is crying. If the curse of our day is the absentee father, then we have strayed far from the principle that God established from Genesis to Revelation as the narrative of Scripture because the word mother is mentioned in Scripture 299 times. The word father is mentioned in this story 1,511 times. Father is mentioned 1,511 times in the Bible. My son alluded to it that father means founder. It means producer. Father means author. When you found something, you establish it. When it is established, it's settled. But if you don't have any fathers, then you do not have any establishment, which you do not have any settledness, which you do not have any peace. Fathers are producers, which means to bring something in public that you made in private. The story of God and his son, Jesus Christ, rests in the power of the mystery of it being hidden throughout all ages until the time was fulfilled for God to bring forth what he created in private and make it public. And Paul said to the Galatian church that he did it in the nick of time or in the fullness of time. That just in time, God pulled the cover on the mystery and said, here's my son and I'm still the father. That's a strong narrative. So when you look at Genesis chapter 18, man, I feel something here now. In Genesis chapter 18, I see this man, this one man, doing something that's very powerful in the face of wrath, in the face of God's anger, in the face of potential destruction. In verse 23, we find this idea of attraction, that the Bible says that Abraham, in the face of all I just recited to you, drew near to God. He drew near to God thought about that today and I thought oh for people hmm. in a time like we're in destruction on every hand that would draw near to God it seems as though the tension as it increases the pressure is multiplying that people are drawing near but they're drawing near to other people that are carrying the same sentiments about the condition that they are. 
which is creating a polarization and a segregation instead of an integration and an interrelated reality. We're doing this instead of this. Talk in the building, Pastor Rick. So the question is, why aren't we approaching God as we see the condition of our nation? Why aren't we attracted to him right now instead of our own ideals or our own ideas? Let me say this to you. What you are drawn to is what you will draw from. What you are drawn to is what you will draw from. What, whatever issue pulls on your heart is the issues that will ultimately flow out of your life. Be careful. I've said it before that you don't make your issues your idol. So the question is, what are you drawing near to and what is pulling on your passion? What people you are drawn to will be the opinions that will be what you sound like. The people that you are drawn to in this hour will be the people you sound like. So be careful that what you are drawn to is not what you are drawing from if that what you are drawing to is not God himself. So the Bible says, Lord have mercy, that Abraham drew near to God. In other words, he went to the source. He went to what he knew was sovereign. I truly believe that we as the people of God, we all want what is right. I really believe that. No matter what you put on your Facebook, I choose to believe that we all want what is right. And I truly believe that we ignore anything that is wrong. If it distracts us from what we feel is right. We will ignore what is wrong if what is wrong doesn't justify what we feel is right. That is what you call unequal scales. Imbalanced living. Until you listen, you can't learn. And until you learn, you can't lead. Oh, Lord. Some of you carrying an influence of four likes on your Facebook. And you feel like you're the sovereign authority on subjects. Leave that alone, Pastor Rick. James 4.8 says this. Draw near to God and he will draw near unto you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is not talking to the world. He's talking to the church. And he calls the church sinners. And he says, cleanse your hands. Cleanse your heart. You are acting like sinners. And he says, you double-minded, which means you run to whatever endorses your opinion. <laughs> double-minded. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. If we just had a people of God that would take one step toward God, God would draw near to us. And I kind of believe it's like this. That as we take a step, he takes a step. It's as if God is measuring our desire by every movement. God is measuring our desire by every attitude. The Holy Ghost told me in the first service, and I didn't share it with them. I thought I would save it for you. To tell my people to stop asking me to endorse their bad attitude. Because I do not co-sign God said, I do not co-sign on bad attitudes. Woo. Draw near to God. So the Bible says, Abraham, one man drew near to God when he gets up close to him. I never read about a man in Scripture 
that drew near to God that he didn't recognize his own personal condition. When Isaiah received the coals from the altar, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips because he was close to God. When Peter got close to Jesus, he realized the defilement in his own soul. It is impossible to get close to him and not recognize your own condition. The second, oh Lord, help me, Jesus. The second thing that I've got to introduce to you is this admission factor. Admit it. When Abraham drew near, watch what he said. He said, I, I'm coming to you to speak to you, but I recognize who you are and I realize who I am. He said, I ain't nothing in verse 27 but dust and ashes. He's saying, God, I'm talking to you and you made me from the dust. And the ashes represent everything I've been through to get to where I am. So I'm coming to you not as someone that has it all together. I'm coming to you in humility saying, I know I'm nothing but dust and ashes. I really don't qualify to talk to you because I ain't nothing but dust and ashes. It's funny to me how that we are now taking the authority to notify everybody else of their condition. But the question is, when's the last time you looked in the mirror and admitted that you ain't nothing but dust and ashes? If it was not for God on your side, you would not be sitting in this building today. So he approaches him through humility. Who am I to even speak to you? I'm drawing near, but I'm admitting I'm nothing without you. <laughs> Why do we address the condition of this nation like we have the final authority, like we are sovereign and all-knowing, like we've got the absolutes and the world can't wait for our next post because we really know. Where are preachers getting off, getting on TV, and telling other people this is how you feel. I don't know how you feel. I ain't never lived in your skin. I ain't never lived where you live. I'm not here to tell you how you feel. I'm here to find out how you feel. And introduce you to a God that can change your condition. But see we can't get out of Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 11. You want to know where we are? I'm going to read it to you because I found it in the Bible. And I'm going to preach today. I'm sorry, I'm not here to talk to you. But I found where we are in the Bible. It's located in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 11. There is a generation that curses their father. And they do not bless their mother. There's a generation that appear in their own eyes but they are not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation, how lofty is their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation, this is it, whose teeth are as swords, their jaw teeth like knives. They devour people. And they devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among men. A picture of four kinds of evil in this generation. Disrespectful. Hypocritical. Proud. And greedy. Proverbs 30 verse 11 through 14 is your answer for this generation. They are rebellious. They do not honor their father and mother. This generation is crippled in gratitude, respect, and honor. I'm going to say it one more time. This generation is crippled in respect, gratitude, and honor. They have no clue what those things mean. Number two, this generation is religious. They are pure in their own eyes. Number three, they relish in their pride. How lofty are their eyes? And number four, they don't remember what really counts. Let me help you. The only thing you should ever feel superior about is being superior over your past. 
At no point in your life are you superior to other people. The only thing you should ever feel superior over is your past. At no point in your life should you ever feel like you are better than. See, here's our problem. We address everything else and everybody else, but we don't address ourselves. Proud. Pride. Whew. All right, I'm going to say it. I wasn't going to say it, but I'm going to say it. I have been in ministry, full-time ministry, for 39, them old saints used to say, long years. 39 years I've been in ministry. March of next year will be 40 years full-time ministry. That's a whole generation. In all my 39 years of ministry, I have never seen the people of God acting as proud as this generation of believers. I've never seen pride at this level. Everyone is proud, proud of your opinion, proud of everything you represent. You're steeped in pride. And my Bible tells me that God resists the proud. First Peter chapter 5, God resists the proud. Every time you make a statement of pride, God does that. Every time you stand up and you, you, you express pride, I'm proud. I'm proud. God resists the proud. And the Bible says he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Do you understand the instruction of this apostle? He said, humble yourself. Don't make God humble you. Make the most of the opportunity to humble yourself. Don't let God show up in your life and humble you. Hum take advantage of the opportunity. To humble yourself. Pride expresses itself in words like this. This is how it ought to be. This is what should happen. Lord, help us today. Pride has its own language. And much of it is nonverbal communication. So Abraham, you still with me, am I good? Hit your likes and your thumbs. Abraham draws near to God. And when he does, he admits, I'm nothing. I'm nothing but dust and ashes. Can I help y'all? We're nothing, y'all. We're nothing. Anything we are is because of Christ. Jesus himself said these words. You, this is Jesus, your Savior, saying this. You are nothing without me. That's verbatim Jesus. I'm not quoting, you know, paraphrasing. That's what Jesus said. You are nothing without me. So who are you to state any kind of statement without inquiring of him? Would Jesus say it? Getting quiet in the sanctified church today. So Abraham draws near. Third word. Number one is attraction. Number two is admission. Here's the third word. Everyone say appeal. He draws near to God. And he said, are you going to destroy these people? If there's 50 people here, will you destroy it? Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? He begins negotiating with God. You ever negotiated a deal? Well, would you take this for it? You, you have, right? You've worked a car salesman or worked somebody. You have. Well, would you take this? And this is what God, Abraham is doing with God. He's negotiating with him, John. He's like, now, Lord, I know, but if you find 50, and God said, I won't destroy you. Well, what about 45? God said, I won't destroy you. Then he said, what about 40? And he sees God working with the five, so he jumps to 10. What about 30? God said, I won't destroy you. What about 20? 
He's negotiating with God. And watch God's heart. God is working with whatever number Abraham gives him. Y'all just missed that right there. Just give me a number and I'll work with it. What does that tell you that God's heart was not bent on destruction? He was trying to find a way not to destroy them. I'm convinced that God right now is positioned himself in heaven trying to find a reason not to destroy us. Because I'm telling you right now, when you look at our history, the things we've done in this country, God should have destroyed us a long time ago. Look at the Supreme Court rulings. Keep going. Men sleeping with men. And you want to act like that started last year. Can I help you? Men been sleeping with men a long time. That didn't start last year. And God didn't destroy us. We have been slaughtering babies. slaughtering unborn children since the 60s by the hundreds of thousands we kill unborn children we kill them we kill them this nation kills unborn babies y'all and we do it by the hundreds of thousands and God has not destroyed us We take Bibles out of libraries and God does not destroy us. We take the Ten Commandments out of courthouses. God does not destroy us. We take prayer out of school. God does not destroy us. We let a Jim Crow rule or law rule, a Jim Crow law rule for a hundred years in this nation. Now, pastor, don't go there because I had nothing to do with that. I didn't do that to the black people. That's not my problem. The Jim Crow law was abolished in 1965. That means you are one daddy away from it. Some of you were there. I was five years old. Hey, I'm going to ask you a sincere question. How many of you, and you at home too, how many of you have read the entire Jim Crow law? Lift your hand as high as you can. You've read the entire thing. A few, about three or four people in here have done that. That's what I thought. Because most people have not. So I had never. So at 4.15 this morning, knowing where I'm going, I decided to get the law out. I started reading it. It'll take you about 30 to 40 minutes to read the entire thing. Ain't that right, Pat? I got about four minutes into it. I'm bawling like a baby. And I can't read it. Because it was making me nauseated. To think that it was a law that if a black man reached his hand out to you to shake your hand, it was taken as a threat. And it was illegal for him to do that. That's one iota of a demonic, diabolic law that existed in this nation until just a few years ago, 196, I was alive. No, we're not that far from it. And I'm sorry that you think you are. You're not. And the problem is not the people. The problem is the blood. Genesis chapter 4, the Bible says the blood of your brother is crying out from the ground. The blood of unborn babies is crying out to God. The blood of men and women that were treated like animals is crying out from the soil of this country. Study your history. Quit ignoring it so you can excuse it. 
Study the history. There's a reason these people. It's in their DNA. They can't escape it. And you act like just everything's cool. You ain't never been black. You didn't have to sit at the dining room table and hear your grandfather tell you stories about walking in the stores and he could not eat where the white people ate. He had to go to the colored restroom and sit in the colored area. Pastor Rick, that ain't us. Well, let me bring it home to you, Norman. You gonna wait till January of 2020 to take a law out of your books right here at this courthouse called the sundown rule that black people can't be out after the sun goes down? Well, we, we, we weren't practicing that though, Pastor Rick. It was, it was written. You didn't take it out till January 2020. This region is steeped in religion, rebellion, relishing in pride. This region refuses to accept and admit that there was a problem. You didn't even know about Black Wall Street. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, where 300 people were murdered by white people because a black man got on an elevator with a white woman and 38 blocks of a city was burned to the ground. And you want to act like you had nothing to do with it because it was 100 years ago? It was your ancestors. It wasn't even taught in this state. You, never, you didn't even know what Juneteenth was. Okay, I'm going to take it a step further. Praise the Lord, everybody watching. Here's what people don't know. See this guy, this, this one, this fellow. I got with another pastor in 1997. And he said, I want to plant a church right in the middle of Greenwood. I said, well, Bishop McIntosh, you got one problem there, brother. You're white. And I said, that's the worst massacre in this nation's history. He said, I know, and that's why I want to do it. You know what I said? Let's do it. So we established Greenwood Christian Center in the heart of Greenwood, where the worst riot in this nation's history happened. The first people to donate money to that church was my church. We gave $35,000 to them to buy their land. You know what church that is today? Transformation Church in Oklahoma with Michael Todd. Why? Because two white men said, this is not us. We are going to denounce racism. We're going to stand against racism. And we're going to plant an integrated church right in the heart of where people attack innocent people. Boy, you, you, you know what? Don't, don't even clap. It's fine with me because I, I'm telling you right now, until we get together as the people of God, help me, Jesus. So God says, I sought for a man that would stand in between. Ezekiel twenty-two thirty. I sought for a man that would stand in the gap. See, nobody wants to stand in the gap because that makes you a bridge. And bridges get walked on and walked over. Bridges are not appreciated. They're taken for granted. So when a man places himself between He's got to be willing to be walked on, talked about. Because when you're a bridge, you don't touch both sides. You touch both shores. It's quiet now. So here's the thing. Until somebody says, I'm going to draw near to God. Until somebody humbles themselves. And until somebody starts negotiating with God by saying, Lord, if there's, let me tell you something. He, he could have got down to one. He could have said one, and God said, I won't destroy it for one. 
I'll work with whatever you give me. So watch this, and I'm done. Because here, here's where I want to land. Genesis 18, 17. I'll be done in 10 minutes. The Lord said, Lord, help me not to cry on this thing here. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? God's thinking. Shall I hide it from him? Watch this. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great mighty nation and all nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Watch what God says. I know him. I know him. That he will command his children and his household after him. That he shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice. That they will keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. What is the predominant characteristic of God through scripture? A father. If he is a father, Antoine, then what is he attracted to? Fathers. So when he needs one, when he needs one, one man, the Bible says he called one man. Genesis chapter 12. You know what his name was? Abram. You know what it means? The exalted father. I need to work with somebody that knows how to work with me. I need to work with someone that understands the passion and compassion of a father. So I choose you, Abram. Your name represents your destiny. He said, but I'm going to change your name. Don't miss this, Christian. You understand the position of the father, but you've never understood what it is to be a patriarch as a father. So I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham. Instead of focusing on your position, you're going to focus on your posterity. It's not what you're about. It's about what you're going to produce. But watch. Watch, don't miss this. I know him. Boy, I'm so glad y'all getting uncomfortable. I hear the beep. Thank you, Jesus. He said, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. I know you. Abraham doesn't mean exalted father. It means the father of many nations. The father of many ethnicities. You got it in you. I can work with you. Because you got nations in your heart. Y'all ain't hearing me. You don't have a position and a title and entitlement in your heart. You got nations in your heart. All because of one man. One man that carried nations like a baby. A whole city was spared. Because one man who understood what it is to carry all nations in your heart. That's strong, y'all. I sought for one man. I'll stop. I can't talk to you, Abram, until you get away from your country and your kind. I can't change you till you leave your kind. I can't change you until you can pull away from your kind. What kind? The kind that speak your language. The kind that co-sign on your post. Until you pull away from your kind, I can't work from you with you. Because you want people around you that endorses everything. You, you got to come out from your country and come out from your kind. If you'll do that, I can change you. If you'll do that, I can work with you. So he says in verse 22 that Abram stood before the Lord. I came with a question today. Men, men, fathers, where are you standing? Where are you standing? Why, why do you think it's so necessary for you to plant your flag? 
How about a blood-stained banner? How about that banner? How about the blood-stained banner of the Lord? How about let's get up underneath that banner right there? Woo! The Lord went his way, and as soon as he did, Abraham returned to his place. You know what it's time for? Men to get back in your place. Shout it as loud as you can. Men, get back in your place. You whispered it. Let's shout it. Abraham returned to his place. You know what this nation needs? This nation needs men of God to return to their place. What is our place? The priest of our homes. What is our place? To protect. What is our place? Our place is to provide for our children. What is our place? Our place should be the first one in prayer. Lead your family. Lead your family. Stop letting the peers at your kid's school be the influence in their life. And you as a patriarch sit down and tell your children, you're going to be great, baby. You're going to be successful. God's hand is on you. And some of you single ladies are in here saying, but I've got children and I don't have that man of God in my house. That's why you got a church. So you can bring your children to the house of God and hear a pastor tell your children you're covered in the blood. So the question is, men, will you return to your place? Because of one man, Sodom and Gomorrah was spared. Listen to me. Because of one man, salvation came to this earth. Because of one man that said, I have a dream that one day little black boys and little white boys will join hand in hand. If you ain't about building that dream, then my question to you is, what are you about? Because you're certainly not about the things of God. To all of you watching online, I bless you today. I say success to you and success to the kingdom, and I need you to know God is on your side. And the men that are watching me today, stand up and be a man of God in your family.